Uno Dose and Howdy Gang. Thank you for tuning in to Back Country and Barbells. I'm Joe Shamanic. The other feller is Jeremy Day. And uh, we actually have another guest, Dan Staten of Elk Shape. Dan, what's up, buddy? What's up, everybody? Yeah, we're all we're all dealing it with Corona crazy here. Um, we're all uh, Washington homebodies, and uh, uh, it it seems to be getting a little weirder, um, a little crazier everywhere um, with with this whole spread of uh, the the novel virus Corona. Dan, you mentioned before the show that you, you got news that Corona is living on cardboard now, huh? <laughs> I just saw it on the news, so. <laughs> And I'd recommend not watching the news. Yeah, there you it's go. Terrible. <laughs> and, freak you uh, out. <laughs> lives in the air for like three hours. Lives on copper for I don't know how many hours, but they said cardboard for twenty four hours, and I about freaked the the crap out when I was like, "Oh crap!" Because we order a ton of stuff for our house through Amazon. Sure. And uh, you don't know where that cardboard's been, man. So you got to wipe down everything if you're one of those people. Yeah, even going to grab a couple of groceries uh, last night and kind of, you know, everyone's in like stock up mode. Even out at the commissary, there were there were two soldiers. Actually, there were there were four soldiers outside the commissary, um, uh, two at the exit, two at the entrance. And the folks at the entrance were actually they had uh, they had Purell bottles. One was squirting people's hands. The other one was handing out um, bleach wipes to make sure everybody was. Uh, super clean as they were getting in there it's uh it's wild times but heck if it if it gets people you know i work in a middle school and i see kids who just refuse to wash their hands under any circumstances so maybe maybe at the end of this if folks can just you know pick up some more hygiene consciousness i think we'll it'll be a win for everybody (laughs) so for sure so so that'll be where we go from there but i want to say you mentioned your little girl um uh in your you're one of in your latest show on Monday about how you know maybe folks who are doing podcasting, folks like yourself are working at home and got into uh, you know helping through folks through through YouTube and whatnot are, are really the original social distancers in terms of bringing their work home and stuff. But you did mention your little girl. Um, I, I got three little ones uh, that I'm at home. the The big bonus for me is I'm kicking some butt doing some hardcore PE classes with my kids in the home gym. Uh, what are you doing with your little girl since you have her home for six weeks now? How's that changed for you guys? Yeah. Uh, well, first off, let's give all teachers raises. I really believe that, man. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'll take my it. God. <laughs> all of them. But no, she's been pretty cool. We try to have some structure in the day. Uh, start off with, obviously, we make them breakfast and then just try to get them outside right out the right out the gates of the day and uh, go for a walk. And then mom has been killing it with like some structure when it comes to whatever, some little bit of artwork time, a little bit of reading. I mean, she's five years old. She's in kindergarten. Sure. But uh, for, for fitness stuff, man, we've done just challenges. She doesn't want to work out per se, but she wants to have fun and play games. So we've just done some challenges. Yesterday it was like a little mini she called it a Spartan obstacle course, which it hardly was, but <laughs> nice. she was out there just doing different, like several waves through that and having fun out in the sun. It was great. And so every day we did a burpee challenge the day before that, and we were trying to get her to be able to do 20 burpees in a minute. And so she was able to do that. I mean, just little things like that, but just keep it fun. Don't make it like, you know, like what PE teachers do. You just yeah. have fun and I don't know, man. It's good for him. Yeah, we try. I've picked up uh, teaching a little bit with um, and touching, rubbing elbows with the folks at Brandex Method a little bit. They have a 
they have a couple a couple cool recommendations for kids in terms of like you know I think the big thing you can do with training kiddos at home is trying to make it overly complicated. I think going simple and having a fun challenge is a is a simple way to go. But if 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 you're ramping things up, you know maybe limit the total movements to something like five. Try to drop reps for kids and make it fun. Uh, we we're doing a little training cycle where. Uh, we're having a strength day, and on the strength day, they do lunges, push-ups, pull-ups, and then on the um, fun day, I let the kids make up the workout. Where and then yesterday when they did the workout, they uh they we pulled out the gymnastics mat and they did a roll, and then they did some jumping and sprinting, and um, they were walking on their hands and stuff. But um you know I think the biggest mistake any parent will make or anyone training any kid will make is they forget that, dang it for kids. The first thing it's got to be is fun. Then you can mix in all the other stuff. Oh, absolutely. I like that idea of having that fun day, something for them to look forward to. Um, and just get them moving, man. Kids just need to move. They need so much activity, more than an hour. So I took my daughter. One day we had, gosh, she went to the park with her little brother. We went over there. They came back. And then she went to a di- – like this was like a marathon day. She And then when she got back, I took her shed hunting. Nice. Not like just lo- just local shed hunting, but she loves shed hunting. For We went two miles. I tracked it. And then she had fun. And then we came back. And then she went to the track with her mom because her mom was doing a track workout. Dude, those kids were asleep by 8 <laughs> o'clock, and we were like, yeah. You did it. You're good parents that day. <laughs> parents know like you get your kids to sleep by eight it's like oh my gosh adult time like hey let's have an actual conversation without interruption or just chill with just in peace but uh how old are your kids yeah we have a um uh, here at the shamanic house we have a a five a uh they're all like in weird ages where right now they're about to turn things mason turns nine in april uh charlie just turned seven and then lucy uh is five going on six so we have a uh we have a basketball team. We're young, but we're spunky. <laughs> and, and, I like it. And then uh, Jeremy's got Titus. Titus uh, Titus is a ball of fire. How are you keeping him under control, Jeremy? Him and I have been just um, going out and dinking around in the yard and then um, doing a lot of field trips. So um, I got him on the treadmill the other day. He ran for a while while I was doing my workout. So he's uh, he's doing well. Well, I think that's um, that's probably he's it. in bed by seven thirty, which is good. I think it's cool that you have him with you while you're training too. I think a lot of folks, even even uh, making the garage gym, like they'll try to like hide their kids while they're getting their fitness on. And I'm like, if you really want fitness to be important to your kids, let them see you try to do it, like and, and include them as much as possible. I just think that's probably the next tip I might make if I'm gonna if we're gonna start this on off on like tips for training your kids at home is, you know, um, you know, make it simple, uh, limit the movements, but man, just let them see you try new stuff too. I mean, and try anything because the biggest inspiration I think for a kiddo is probably who's right in front of their face. So, um, you know, if you make fitness important, eventually they're going to do it too. Absolutely. So, well, sweet. Yeah. I didn't do that with my other two cause I also have a 22 year old and an 18 year old. My 22-year-old, my wife was in the fitness industry for 20 years, and then she got out. She taught a lot of classes, yoga, you know, many, many, many classes. And she would take um, Joey to the gym all the time, and he's he's in the gym every day now. So there was that influence, too, that he was, you know, two, three times a day he was going 
with mom to go teach classes. But with our daughter, it didn't didn't take as well. It's the same. Oh, well, you know, different strokes. Yeah. We can't turn them all into uh, uh, national-level weightlifters or uh, CrossFit Games exactly. athletes. So they'll, they'll figure their own way out. But, um, Dan, you mentioned, you mentioned shed hunting. Um, how's that turning out for you? It seems like that's the big craze right now. Guys are out there trying to uh, – you know, is shed hunting for you something where it's is you know is is the trophy the prize or is it outdoors? Get just getting out there during a dead season or is it um, a matter of your scouting scouting for the next uh, the next trophy on the wall? Yeah, let, let's talk about shed hunting. So number one, <laughs> okay. I believe it's a, the most uh, what is it? It's the it's ridiculous how some guys do it. Like, and I'm gonna make fun of them. I think like there's a lot of awesome participation. Uh, participation trophy shed hunting where a lot of people are really good at shed hunting but don't kill anything in the fall so i don't think shed hunting is life but i just enjoy the vitamin d and i love being outside and it's pretty fun and exciting when you like get to pick up some bone especially for the kids i think it gets them interested i think it's a good gateway drug to the outdoor lifestyle uh, I do get serious about shed hunting if I go somewhere legit, i.e. the Southwest. Like we've last year, we took the whole family to, to New Mexico and shed hunted for uh, in March when those bulls dropped pretty early down there. And I mean, we picked up so many sheds, I we had to stop picking them up. I mean, the packs were getting heavy. <laughs> That's not going to happen in Washington State or in North Idaho. Like the snowpack is so deep and. Uh, our bulls don't drop till a little later. Uh, but here's what I do with like elk shed hunting to me is fun. You know, just, I'm, I'm usually spring bear hunting when I'm out there. I'm glassing hillsides looking for bears. I'll see a shed. I'll make a note of it, keep hunting. And then I'll come back, uh, in some downtime and go get that shed. That's fun. Uh, every once in a while you'll stumble upon a good bedding area and you'll maybe pick up, but I love it. It's fun for whitetails. We just do it to, for the kids to get them out. The the deer around here live a little lower elevation, and uh, every once in a while you'll find a a, a good buck and kind of get a clue on maybe the next buck you're going to want to hunt. But uh, all in all, I love shed hunting. I think it's like honestly one of the best ways of exercising. You get a lot of miles in. The only downside is in about a couple weeks when those ticks start coming out. Mm. That's a super big pain in the ass. <laughs> Yeah, they, they are a huge. I'm a tick magnet, man. Joe had to cut one out of my neck this last turkey hunting season. Yeah, I don't. I'm not a big fan of. Um, I don't think. I mean, do do ticks serve any purpose? I mean, I, I try to like look at. I don't want to be a a speciesist here, but I can't imagine. Uh, do they pollinate? I mean, I don't know if ticks do anything besides annoy people, spread Lyme, and they're some of the the grossest. They're the grossest bug that I can. I mean, there's nothing worse than it. You know, you just feel <laughs> creepy. You know, if you had a tick, how long it's been there? What's it doing? Is it burrowed in? How do I get it out? But um, so I'm with you, with you on that. But the, with this idea of shed hunting, though, it's it's super intriguing. You know, uh, Jeremy got me into hunting. I've been going at it for three hard years now, um, and picking it up late in my 30s. Like this idea of walking around the woods looking for falling off antlers is one that's just. It doesn't. It does. It's not grabbing me as hard as actually like chasing down live and and white tail. You know, live elk and and white tail and and black tail. But uh, try to explain just the craze to me. Like, 
because it, it's, it's it's one aspect of hunting that just hasn't gotten me. It's not something that I'm getting out of bed to do. Well, I think a lot of folks, it, it's a spring fever reliever. It gets them gotcha. out of the cabin fever. Uh, it gets you. It's a good excuse to get out in the mountains that you might pick up some bone. Um, there's people that level go level ten and like make some serious loot uh, because, uh, like especially elk antlers, you know, you sell them by the pound. Okay. And elk antlers aren't light. You know, moose paddles aren't light. So you can actually make some serious cash. There's a lot of antler buyers just everywhere out west. And if you scoop up enough browns and you meet the said antler buyer, they'll they'll meet you in a parking lot. They'll bust out a scale. They'll weigh your antlers, the chalk, the white ones that are old and ones that are brown and good. And they'll give you cash money. I've sold sheds before. and Okay. So – there's that. I mean, I literally know one lady who used to work out at my gym back when I owned it, and she uh, she paid off her mortgage by shed hunting. I kid you not. But they wow. did it. They did it so hardcore that they probably will never want to shed hunt again. I hear but, you. I mean, um, but it's legit. My buddy in New Mexico, man, I think he he probably made. I can't say how much he made because I don't think he paid taxes on it. But okay. he made enough to be like. <laughs> <laughs> dang i mean that's a that's some upgrades to the garage gym you know no, what i, I mean? hear you. so yeah I, there's guys like me that just i don't sell if i find a really cool one i just keep it and uh, i sell my my i'll sell sheds every couple years if if i have enough but it's fun man i learn a lot about animals and it gets you out there so it's cool it's the shed hunting to me the downside is the guys that are like literally absolutely harassing animals that haven't dropped their sheds yet and they're mm-hmm. like that's when the animals are most susceptible, which is why I think you're going to continue to see more legislation. Many states have actually put some sort of regulation into shed hunting where, like, you can't start till May 1st. I think, like, Nevada did it. Uh, I think Utah is has done it. I think Colorado might or will do it. And I know in Montana and even in our state, like, some of the wildlife refuge areas where they feed the animals through the winter, you can't shed, like, you can't shed hunt there till a certain date. And, uh, people still break the rules, but ultimately we're trying to, you know, mitigate people harassing animals when dude, they just got done with winter. They're their skinniest, most vulnerable, leave them alone and just wait till May and then go pick them up. That's, that's my two cents at least. Well, it's- yeah, no, I would agree with you on that. And, um, because they shouldn't be. I mean, they got harassed through the whole fall. They have to survive through the winter, and then then get harassed to get for their antlers. I mean, it's it's too much stress on them. And like in your neck of the woods too, over in the Idaho, where you probably hunt, there's wolves and everything else. So they're constantly having to deal with harassment. Hundred percent. Well, and I think I think what's beautiful about um, shed hunting is it, I mean, even though we're grown adults, we still love the game of, um, Easter egg hunting. And that's almost like what it is when you see one, it brings that child in you and you run over and grab it and you're all stoked and you look at it and, um, there's that excitement. Yeah. It's big kid Easter egg hunting without a doubt. <laughs> but, um, but if, if you bring up the bigger point of just, you know, how much stress do, do these critters feel, you know, throughout the entire year. And as, you know, folks want to recreate and, um, you know, you hear of, you know, in, in high density places, you know, like you have, you have the, I, th- I think of, I think of a place like Crystal Mountain, Germany out here where we are, where folks like to go skiing and, um, you know, 
I do a big trail race at Crystal Mountain, our big Ragnar Series trail race every year. And I remember being out there, you'd see elk. Um, then you have the hunting seasons around there. Then you have the ski seasons around there. And then you have even um, ski resorts that, you know, trying to get snowshoeing and different and people going deeper. Um, how, how much stress? I mean, wh- when don't these animals feel stress and i mean the overall impact on that i mean i'm not a biologist but just kind of talking you know with two other guys who spent a bunch of time in the woods i mean how much how much responsibility is that on you know hunters or people who just have the knowledge that everything stresses these animals out i mean how much responsibility do we have and just kind of chatting that out and also maybe not going in the woods at some part in the year that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a biologist, but what I can say from my experience is I should probably clarify like the harassment or what I it's just more like interference. Like oh, sure. the elk are just do they're doing their thing. They found some timber where there's not as much snow because there's timber and they're in there and, and then they look across the ridge and they see a bunch of people. They're gonna freak out and then they're gonna have to leave that like little sacred area that they found for themselves and you bump them and it's just they didn't need to be bumped maybe they've been harassed by wolves recently i mean when it comes to wolves like a lot of people think that wolves are like just seeing elk killing elk a lot of times they just have strength in numbers and they might just rotate through like send one wolf out chase the elk the elk obviously is faster uh but is having to work harder through the snow and when that wolf's tired tag Next buddy in, you chase that said wolf or said chase that elk around some more. It, this could take a couple of days, but they can literally wear their prey out, and they know it until they're completely exhausted, and then um, it's killed. And so the the premise of the wolves only killing the weak or maybe the old, in my opinion, is far from the truth. They're just really good at killing anything. Uh, so the harassment from people isn't just like people like. Hey, elk, run. It's just that they don't want to see people. They they just want to be left alone uh, and recover. I mean, they're not – their whole diet changes during the winter. There's not grasses and forbs. They're eating, like, the cambium layer and bark and willows and just whatever they can, the moss, the lichen off trees. Uh, their diet really changes, and it's not very dense in calories – so they have to conserve energy as much as possible. Yeah, and that, that and that's kind of why I bring the point up because it's it's not like, you know, when we go from Chick Fil A to Burger King, or when you decide to change your meal on the fly and go from you know uh, elk in the freezer to oh we got a turkey this this spring let's eat that. I mean that those are very casual decisions for us. But you said you're a you know you're a you're this huge. You know, you're a huge elk. You're trying to conserve calories, and you're trying to conserve energy, and you're trying to get what calories you can. So, I mean, when they have to change spots, I mean, it's a big undertaking. So, no, I think it's a. I, I don't know if like anyone would ever can. You know, you use the word harassment, and um, I don't not to not to labor on that, but uh, not that it even is harassment, but just to understand that, man, when that animal has to change spots and the stress that you bring under it. Um, it's it's a pretty big deal and um you know it's just it, it, the need for the that critter to have some sort of a moment uh where they can have um they can have sovereignty and just kind of eat and do those things that that any 
any animal would like to enjoy, I think is, is pretty paramount. And, uh, um, you know, it, it's tough to not be selfish, right? Because everyone wants to get their time in the woods, but man, uh, and you hate, you'd, you'd hate for that to be legislated, but, um, you know, maybe, maybe, um, as things get, you know, tougher for, for those elk, uh, and, you know, other, other, uh, game species there, there might be, need to be a consideration for, you know, spring recreation and off hunting times because, you know, um, you know, backpackers, you know, they're probably not for one contributing to the pool to conserve and, and keep those, those habitats and, and quality of life up for that animal. But, you know, they're probably also not thinking, you know, deeply about how, you know, them treading on that trail is, is affecting that animal as much as, you know, a hunter would. So I don't know. I just feel like maybe there's a responsibility to, you know, at least have the conversation and, and take the animal state of mind, uh, before maybe toting off in the woods. Well, I think where it turns into harassment really is when it's, it's an individual's, you know, choice to sit there and follow a herd and bump them continually. And I think that's where it turns into harassment, but we're in the natural life. I mean, these elk learn where the trails are. They learn where humans go most of the time and they try to avoid it like Dan was saying, but I think it really just buries down as to the individual's intent when he goes out there. And that's why they did, you know, setting these mandates and, you know, you can't, um, shed hunt after May 1st. Cause then you got, I mean, there's just one individual, but you get 40 guys that are competitive about shed hunting and then what are they doing? <laughs> They're constantly bumping. I mean, and it shed hunting can get into a crazy serious game. I mean, it can get, it gets pretty nuts. Well, and the, like a lot of States have winter range, which sure. is like the valleys and you know, that's where we build road systems. And so a lot of these animals are visible from the road. So that's when you'll get several avid shed hunters camping on said animal waiting for them to drop. And so they're just, you know, I don't know if these guys are unemployed or what, but a lot of them have (laughs) some serious ones, man. They do it right. Uh, Personally, I just don't see... A lot of upside, especially if the animals found a little slice of sanctuary and they can't chill out and recover. So, yeah, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. So I think if everyone remains respectful, I think most states, it wouldn't hurt my feelings if most states made it a law that you couldn't shed hunt till May 1st. And all that means is you can't pick up the antlers sure. until May 1st. doesn't mean you can't recreate, but it just does. It incentivizes folks to leave animals alone. So. Yeah, and the real tough spot would be, I mean, when you go when you go to Yellowstone or any national park, I mean, the big thing there is you can't take anything. You can't take a tuft of buffalo hair you find on the side of the road. So, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it could get really nasty um, in terms of that. So, uh, enjoy it while you can, you know, but do it respectfully. I think, um, it, you know, it has to it has to be the way about it. We're all we're all here on this rock doing it, um, but. Well, you, you're bringing it up too. While you're shed hunting too, you're you're double dipping, trying to uh, trying to uh, you know chase uh, black bear and, and wolf. And I know you have some predator hunts on the line. Uh, the whole the whole wolf conversation is super interesting. We were having um, who did we have on on Jeremy uh, uh, out in Idaho? He was commenting about how um, over his you know last Dirk Dirk yeah. Dirk was um, not happy about the wolf situation, but at least in Idaho, I mean, you you can you can still uh, chase him down. You can go after him. Uh, you you were talking about how 
intense they are and these endurance hunts and how capable capable they are as predators but as a prey species uh they don't seem easy to get i mean when you're getting into um wolf hunting uh it's something i haven't done but i can't imagine the challenges associated with it yeah i don't i don't personally think that uh they're very easy to hunt. They're very intelligent. There's a lot of dynamics. Uh, did you say Dirk as in Dirk Durham? Yeah. Yes. That's so funny to me. I I have to t- confess this. So Dirk is about 30 feet away from my office right now asleep. Fired and up. Then in the, <laughs> <laughs> and wake his ass up. I should. Just and then the other room, about and then the next room over is Jason Phelps. Both guys are at my house right now crashing. Uh, they, It's a long story short, but they're – they're here at my house sleeping. I told them I had a podcast in the morning with y'all. So fired uh, up. If they wake, if they wake up, I'll like get in here. Y'all chasing wolves? Y'all chasing wolves together? Uh, no, we're working on a, a side project, and we're breaking the law by, you know, being hang, social distancing. We're not really doing, but hey, get your uh, rulers we're working out. On a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it sounds no, like they, you are. They're in the other room. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, but we have a couple projects we're working on, and uh, you know, Dirk just got back from a little wolf hunt, and I asked him. I said, "Did you did you find any fresh tracks? Could you locate wolves?" And he said, "No." And that is the like that is the whole premise around wolf hunting is that they are so mobile, and they can travel great distances, regardless of the time of year. In fact, winter is almost better for them because they can stay on top of the snow with their pads. It's like snowshoes for them. And so if you are wolf hunting, you have to like literally try to find where the pack is that day. Mm. And that is the number one uh, obstacle. And especially for wintertime, we can't just cruise ridgelines. You know, they're buried in snow. So if you don't have a sled, you kind of stuck to the road systems that don't have too much snow. And then you're out howling trying to locate a pack. Now, if you find a pack, I would say your odds go double, if not triple, as far as get in tight and you can call them in via predator call or what this time of year you could probably even howl them in because they're still probably in breeding season some of the younger males have dispersed but uh, no they're they're super tough i've seen a lot of wolves uh, up close and personal especially during september while hunting last year i had my daughter i took her shed hunting and we had a, a wolf literally run up to us about 40 yards so she's seen a wolf and it was not a small one. I did get some video of that. And so, yeah, it's a it's an uphill battle. But I think if we could get more people interested, uh, all the better. Because we definitely have a surplus. I mean, Idaho has 15 tags available for, for one hunter. Mm. Uh, not that anyone's going to get 15. And then I think you can trap another 15. <laughs> That's a wow. lot. Yeah, it's pretty. like. And then you got Washington, where we live, next door, that's like, uh, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to manage them, but we're not going to have a season and we're just going to spend our money on, you know, well, governor Inslee doesn't want us to, to harm the wolves. He wants, you know, not lethal methods, but before he said that recently, Washington fishing game was using lethal methods when wolves were devastating ranchers. Uh, basically they're, they're, you know, most of their hurt, you know, I think it was, I don't know the numbers, so, but basically a lot of wildlife ranchers, uh, where it be a head of cow or whatever, but their calving season, especially, you know, they have some instances where wolves come down and kill their cattle and their livestock kind of gets hurt and 
they try to set up, you know, ways for their to protect their cattle and the wolves are smart. And so eventually fishing game will come out and I don't know how many times I've seen on the news where it's Idaho fishing game kills an entire pack up in mm. the northeastern corner of the state. Dude, hunters would pay f- for the opportunity to do that. And the chances of them being successful are very slim, but at least it'd be a revenue source. And uh, you, I just don't feel like we're ever going to get rid of wolves no matter what we do. So why not get some money back into the Washington fishing game budget? I think they already asked for 50% increase from the general fund. So they're hurting for money and they don't have wolf seasons. It's it's just a very tricky situation and I don't see it changing in, in the near future. Yeah, the, not in Washington State. It's pretty. I mean, it's pretty tough in this state because they're so animal friendly. Well, the politics of predator hunting seem just really strange to me. Even again, a new guy to hunting, pretty much. Um, even in like New Jersey, where uh, well, Jersey. You know, I'm from the East Coast and just moved out here from uh, West Point, New York, uh, two years ago. But the the situation there is, you know, you have a you have a state like New Jersey with probably the most the most densely populated group of black bears um, in the country, if not the world, to be honest with you. Um, but you know, it was a political issue where you know they some people speculate that the reason the current governor was elected is because he took um, the black bear hunting you know off the table um, because it's such a, a politically charged issue. Um, and I, and I we've tried to have this conversation before, but I can't seem to sort out why why is it Disney movies that or you know like why so much pressure to save the wolves and not have a season especially when you just said i mean they did a good job of recovering them and now there's a surplus and you know the the idea of the way american ma- the way america manages animals has done well for you know whitetail across the country it, you know it's helping elk come back it seems to be a successful model um that not only has the animal's best interests in mind but also generates some revenue for the state i just I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around this idea of why predators get just there's just so much uh, visceral reaction to to even promoting a season when there's a surplus. Couldn't tell you, my friend. Yeah. I, it's a, probably a combination of things, but if you, I don't know, if you understand the resources and figure out, put your emotions aside and look at it logically, it's. It's to me, it's super obvious. Like, I think wolves are really cool. I could see the argument for how they benefit other wildlife before the quote reintroduction. You know, maybe we had too many elk, but at this point, most elk in most landscapes have seen, been chased, and some of a lot have been killed. And so these these new elk know to disperse more. It might push our elk down more into the lower elevations where people live, but that's what that's where elk started. That's where they they're plains animal, they, sure. you know, and they might need to be down there just to see further and be able to get away from danger faster. Uh, but I don't know why there's such a yeah. I don't. I think there's just an aura. People think wolves are majestic. They their howling's really cool. But if you like. If you've been around a lot of wolves, you start to figure out they're a dog. It's just a it's a dog, a really big dog. And so I don't know. We'll see, but I, I could digress and go down a whole rabbit hole. But I will tell you this. My buddies up in north north Idaho, all their friends are trapping wolves and they're getting a lot of them taken out 
And guess what? The whole area gets backfilled with Washington Wolves. When you take out an mm. entire pack in the Selkirks on the Idaho side, doesn't matter. You'll just get a backfill of the ones from Washington. And so it sucks because there's just not, you know, not all the states are on the same page. And so um, I hope it doesn't come down to where you have somebody's kid or some really bad man versus wolf situation. But it might be just a matter of time. And, you know, how many cougar attacks do you see every year, especially in Colorado and California? California's got the most stringent rules when it comes to, you know, mountain lions. And so you, I think you're just going to continue to, as urban sprawl happens, you're going to have more conflict. You Absolutely. Mean, well, Oregon, we saw a death there last year, and even in Washington from a cougar, first time in history. And it's because they're getting overpopulated. Oh. Yeah, and you can't manage them when you can't use hounds. People, no, you I don't can't. People understand that. I don't know how many guys have hunted their whole life and never seen one. I'd say the majority. So you don't see... There's not a lot of opportunity killing from hunters. Yeah, most hunters get a, a sportsman's pack, have a cat tag in their pocket. They don't see cougars. Cougars are unbelievable. And they're actually hard on elk, too. Uh, so it's just a matter of, uh, you know, putting emotions aside and trying to find that sweet spot where we can make everybody kind of happy, but not everybody happy, you know. Well, that's like that's like any marriage, right? Compromise. I mean, you gotta you gotta give a little to get a little. You know, it works out. Um, but um, you know, it's interesting to me. I think that the real thing that we have to do is get these wolves to recognize uh, their state's borders. Like, come on, guys. Like, uh, stay in Washington, fellers. Like, what's going on? But um, <laughs> where you talk about this idea, you know, it seems like uh, where you're located, you have a you have an interesting perspective being on like you can dip into Washington, you can go to Idaho. Um, you know, wolves, wolves are crossing that line, you know, without thinking about it. But, um, you know, as a hunter, you know, as a businessman, uh, as, as just a guy who, who's doing that, I mean, are they like different worlds in terms of, um, the hunting landscape or, or anything? I mean, uh, given your druthers, I mean, in your, your, um, your choice, I mean, is there a difference between, uh, Washington and Idaho in terms of just that hunting landscape? You know, they can be pretty similar in some aspects. Like, it's an interesting question. So I can give you like an elk perspective because that's all I think about is elk hunting. Yeah, um, like northeastern, <laughs> <laughs> northeastern Washington is very similar to North Idaho. It's very steep. It's very timbered. It's got thick brush. And so, uh, Landscape-wise, very similar. Uh, when you get over into, like, southern Idaho, I, don't, I mean, Idaho's got the biggest wilderness in the lower 48. It's got the church. It's got good desert country. It's got some good country that's close to Montana where there's huge ranges and big valleys and sagebrush flats. And it's got a whole bunch of cool stuff, just like Washington's very diverse. For those that don't know, like, you got a rainforest. You got the Cascades. You got you know, some deserty, middle of the state, dry, arid, and then you go over to eastern Washington, you got rolling hills, pines, you got the Palouse, which is like wheat fields upon wheat fields, and then you kind of got some of the mountains that start breaking off into Idaho. So very diverse. As far as comparing the hunting, 
Washington elk hunting to me is something that it's really low level priority because of you have to choose a weapon so you can pick rifle, muzzy, muzzleloader, or archery. And that's your season. And people will say, well, they have a multi-season tag, whatever. No one draws that. Uh, they give out very few. So you're kind of married to your weapon, uh, which really puts you in a higher density of people. So everyone who archery hunts, hunts at the same time. And it's a pretty mm. short season when you compare it to other states out west. I believe Washington offers you 12-ish days of archery. And it's usually not super exciting to me because – like a lot of the elk in eastern Washington basically live on private property. And it's a, it's a very good old boy system. you got to knock on doors, plan on being rejected. And then there is some elk dispersed throughout some of the public land. But it's, the densities are nowhere exciting to me. I mean, I have very few days to elk hunt a year. I want to be in a better place. Uh, Muzzleloader seasons in Washington are, are good, but they're very short seasons, you know somewhere like around six, seven days. And then the rifle seasons, I think, are usually a weekend to a weekend, and those are really crowded. We have a lot of people in Washington, and we don't have – I mean, we have good elk numbers. I don't remember the total, but it's it's good, but it's not great. Uh, so if I were to compare, like, Oregon and Washington, very similar politics, but Oregon's got way more elk. And um, so – Surprised more people don't head down to Oregon. Sorry, Oregon people, but uh, they got great. <laughs> they have great numbers of elk season, and a little little better dispersion, a little more public land access, and a lot better archery season. Um, so, Washington compared to Idaho, it's just it comes down to densities, availability, and then like generous seasons. Idaho's got very long seasons. Uh, you can pick up an A tag and hunt. Most of September, if you're not successful, you can come back in there with a rifle for four or five days. If you're not successful, you can come back in November in some units and do a muzzleloader hunt. If you're not successful, you can come back in December and do an archery hunt. So it's to me, I think you get more bang for your buck. But I mean, I think Idaho's capping how many non-resident tags. They're bumping up their prices. Uh, there's a lot of Washington people that buy those tags, and so. It's getting crowded in the woods. It's undeniable. As you uh, as you consider all that crowding, and, and it seems like you're bouncing around quite a bit. I mean, as you're laying out your seasons and applications are coming in, I mean, what's your goal? Even like your grand goal, are, are you trying to hit all three of those states? Are you just trying to hit one? Or is your is your idea of a, of a great hunting season just getting that one tag filled each time, each year? Yeah, I think that's a great question because a lot of guys don't, sit down and understand their their expectations of their hunt and sure. actually define what is success for them. So if you're somebody who's never killed an elk and you're just getting into elk season, your goal should be to get in front of as many elk as possible, have as many encounters. You're going to screw things up. You're going to make dumb mistakes initially, but that is a successful elk hunt. If you go for 10 days and you get into a baker's dozen encounters, that's a win. Uh, if you're somebody who's had a little bit of success here and there, but it's real sporadic, you might want a successful season for you might be able to kill any legal bull and just create consistency or some sort of continuity. Uh, for someone like me who's killed a lot of elk and you pretty much can guarantee you need to kill an elk because you live off elk meat, it's a little different. Uh, so for me, I try to put myself 
into at least two or three different states every year. Uh, it would be great to draw a tag where I'm getting a tag that's, you know, limited. Only a certain amount of hunters can get that tag. So I play the points game. Um, I want one of those tags. And then to maybe have one or two over-the-counter tags and to set aside time for each one of those hunts and at least get one elk. That's To me, that's a must. And then from there, if I get more, that's just more meat stockpiled. That's great. Uh, but everybody needs to honestly have honest expectations and to sit down with their buddies, their, their squad, and understand what is a successful hunt look like for us. Uh, is it a shot opportunity or is it encounters? Is it blood on our hands and we're getting meat in the freezer? Uh, it just depends. But we all, all hunters, I think, value and prize the wild game. There's, yeah. That's undeniable. And so for me, ultimately, I don't care about horn size. I just want elk meat in my freezer. So, so you are you're you're floating some points in a couple states, and then you'll also just go over the counter. I mean, so will you end up prioritizing a particular hunt every year? Yeah. So I'm waiting. Yeah. I'm waiting for draw results right now, and I'm putting in for a few more states. Uh, so at the time of this recording, I haven't yet put in for Montana or Colorado, um, but I've put in for New Mexico. Haven't gotten the draw results there yet. Uh, Arizona, I got shut down, and. I do have an Idaho tag already. Um, let's see, Washington. I haven't bought my tags yet, but I can get those. And I will probably figure out a way to hunt Washington, whether it be archery or with a muzzleloader with an archery. You know, you can hunt archery during muzzleloader in Washington, which is sure. the one I'll, I'll give. I'll tip my hat to Washington. That's pretty cool because uh, I prefer archery over anything. And then. Um, so I'm and then Wyoming, I'm waiting for draw results. So I put in all the states out west and I understand that I it's a very fluid plan. It's constantly changing based on the draw results and uh, you need some luck in your hat for sure. But at the end of the day, I'll just go straight over the counter Walmart tag if I don't draw anything and I'll try to go to a couple states. So uh last question on the the, the draw odds for you. Um you know, uh, not tipping your your hat too much to where you've applied, but um, you know, haven't been in it. So for me, you know, I'm year three. Like, and last year I thought was a pretty successful year for me. I actually put I put the stock on two cows, which was cool, and then one one on a solo hunt. Um, I stalked a group into within 35 yards, but didn't know that there were there were a bunch of calves 15 yards from me. So I, in, in, in regards to what you just said, I had a really successful year last year. So I'm fired up, uh, bumping, bumping elk and, and finding them. Um, I was pretty pumped up, but for you having been in the game and filled a couple tags and done it in different States. I mean, do you, do you have, does the dream hunt ever change? I mean, do, do you still have that dream hunt that, that you'd love to still get on in terms of, uh, in terms of spot or, or, uh, you know, a particular elk in a particular state? Yeah, I was just talking to Phelps yesterday about this. So, because he's been playing the game as long as I have. Uh, when you draw a tag that you've been putting in for over a decade, sure, there is a certain amount of pressure that most people aren't aware of until they have the tag. Like, uh, I drew a Blues Bull tag one year in Washington. So, it took me over a decade to get that tag, and. I mean, we're talking the blues. This is pre-wolf. This is good. I mean, this is as good as it gets. And when I was down there, I was like, holy smokes. I probably might not ever hunt here again. And <laughs> it took me forever. Like, you, there's just a little bit of pressure to really 
squeeze every drop out of that hunt. And uh, I've had that experience one more time. I drew Nevada one year for elk and I got to go down there and I just, same feeling of like a little bit of pressure to get it done, obviously, but like you also are recognizing that you're probably not going to get this opportunity ever again. You know, Nevada makes you wait, I think seven years after you draw the tag Mm -hmm. and then you're back to zero after that. So I can't even put in for Nevada for a few more years. So I, I realistically probably won't hunt there again. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of pressure to those tags. I have a few more areas, but like New Mexico has no point system. So we all have the same odds. And I haven't drawn New Mexico since 2007. Hmm. And I'm putting in every year. Uh, so there's just the, the reality is most of us are going to hunt over-the-counter general units that are not managed for trophy they're managed for opportunity, and we have to be okay with that. Sure. So uh, to speak on that pressure, because um, everything for me has been general tags. I haven't done that. Is is that a pressure to get a big animal? Is that a pressure to to? I, I'd like to just for you to speak more on that pressure because it's it's uh it seems interesting. Like does it does that pressure even take the fun out of the hunt? You know, you you've worked so hard to get this tag, and now all of a sudden, man, I got to make right by it. Um, I, I can't imagine that that's that 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 becomes an interesting camp. I think it depends on your mindset. I think if you let other people dictate your success uh, and you succumb to comparison, you will be robbed of any of your joy. Hmm. However, if you are in approaching a hunt as like, look, I might not ever hunt here again. I want to get the full experience. I think the pressure comes down to just, I don't want to screw this up. And all of us hunters can appreciate that just even on an over-the-counter tag, but it does level up because you probably aren't going to be there again and you know it's a it's a more special opportunity compared to others um as far as like i i gotta kill this certain size of an animal that's a game many people get stuck in that's one that i refuse to play uh to me i told you at the end of the day a successful hunt is one for me where i have elk meat and if that means shooting a raghorn two and a half year old five by five right on um to me i if i spend all those years putting in I really want to get my my tag punched, and I want to be packing meat back to the freezer. My wife doesn't care if I kill a 350 bull or uh, a spike bull. She only cares about did you kill an elk? Do we have elk meat? And I love that. So that's to me that's like the bottom line. My, and my wife's starting to come around on that. The more she the more she eats on Jeremy's bulls. Um, the more she wants me to get one of my own. Uh, we have a little rule in camp too, where uh, you know we have a cool setup where everybody gets meat. You know, everyone everyone who helps with the pack out gets you know gets some on that. So I think even with that, it brings a little. You know, when when you miss an opportunity, you know, it brings some disappointment into camp for everybody because you know you wanna you want everybody to come out with a freezer full, but um, you know it doesn't always work out that way. But uh, no, nah, it's it's a it's a pretty rad go about. So um, to to get into uh. Your your where where I came across your content was the training um, aspect of of getting out to, um, after elk and one of the reasons I like elk hunting even though I've been unsuccessful is I love the time in the woods and I love the work I love the hunting and um, I have been blessed on two opportunities to pack out two of Jeremy's animals um, and there's nothing like the fatigue you feel after elk hunting like a successful elk hunt is to me is as close to when I was playing college football or as close to, you know, doing a workout at the CrossFit Games, just feeling 
that exhaustion um, in all the best ways. Um, and, and you have a great mindset, in my opinion, for, for getting after it and, and training hard for it, which I wish more hunters would, um, I wish more hunters would take seriously. Um, but uh, uh, the, the origins of elk shape and why you felt the need personally for you to begin training hunters to train for the hunt. Um, how did that all generate? Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, I want to be limitless in the mountains. Sure. I, I don't want to have anything holding me back. And the style of elk hunting that I do is, is very physical. Just like you guys said, from start to finish, from getting into the country that the elk live to, you know, if you actually get one down, getting all that meat back to your truck, and there's just a lot of ups and downs in between, and it's just really hard. So you really got to love the shit if, yeah. you, if you if it comes down to it. <laughs> you got to love an, a good old ass whooping, and it's not for everybody. And I don't. That's cool. I get it. But for me, a really challenging, really difficult, and it's a lot of it's between the ears. And you don't have to be in good shape to hunt elk, but if you want to get in good shape, you have to have some degree of discipline to create that consistency in your training. And I think that discipline builds mental preparedness. And I think that if you are somebody who doesn't need to work out, but you're just mentally tough and you get it done every year, I think you could be even better if you were disciplined and worked out and were tough mentally already. I think it'll only make you better. So I figured out real, real quick that I was so passionate about elk hunting that I could kind of leverage it a little bit. Like, I could bend it pretty hard to make me get up early and train because I knew I wanted to kill an elk or I knew that if, if I ate better, bought the right foods, spent the time in the kitchen making my food for the week that I would feel better, I would be a better version of myself, I would train harder, I would be a better husband, father. Uh, I just think it's all interweb related and so I just boiled it down to elk hunting is my why that's why I do what I do. I leverage it, and I know that it's going to hopefully help me hunt better and longer in life. And I just don't want to live a life without elk hunting. So uh, when we've kind of figured out that, we realized, okay, wait a second. We've, we're on to something here. We can create more personal development through elk hunting. Awesome. And then that just evolved into my bread and butter, which is elk-shaped camps, where I travel to places where people either have some sort of elk hunting pedigree or they want to get into elk hunting, and we teach them everything from archery, elk strategy, elk behavior biology, and then we finish the camps with some fitness and nutrition. I think a lot of people think it's elk-shaped camp, so like it's a fitness camp, and it's really not. Like You can be fit and know a lot about elk, but what if you don't know a single thing about your weapon? or archery, or your technique, or your shot process, or how to make sure your bow's in tune and time. So we kind of cover A to Z, and by the end of the weekend, I think people figure out that it was hardly any fitness, it was a ton of personal development, they have a blueprint of all the things they suck at, and they're going to reprioritize those things to the top of the list, just kind of like CrossFit principles, like you, you're not supposed, to, if you love snatching, and you got a double body weight snatch. You don't need to snatch that much. But if you can't run a mile in under seven minutes, you probably need to spend more time running. Or if your gymnastics sucks and you can't do a pull-up, 
you got to put that at the top of the list. I can't, I can tell you how many CrossFitters I've met over the years that just loved running, couldn't even deadlift their body weight or conversely had a huge dead, couldn't run a sub seven minute mile. So it's all about balancing out your portfolio. And I do that with my elk hunters. I figure out what their glaring weaknesses are and I show them how to work on those and make those kind of their number one priority. Is, is there a, um, having done that for a little bit, and I love the idea of raising the minimums, right? I mean, I think that, you know, if you're really going to scrutinize anything you're great at, you know, it's it's easy to say I'm good here, but um, it's harder to really take an objective look at yourself and, and say, hey, you know, where am I deficient? It takes, it takes putting your ego aside to do that. Uh, having done a, having done a bunch of these camps, um, you know, if you could, if you could zero in, you know, for the general population, I know this is always a tough question, but you know, what, what's the, what's the low hanging fruit that, that most, you know, new, you know, for me again, you know, I, I'm into the fitness, I'm dialing in, I'm trying to shoot my bow and, 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 you know, I'm trying to learn about the animal, but you know, you know, sometimes folks don't know what, what they don't know. And, 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 and they miss out on, on that real, that one thing that might be to get them to be more successful next year for, for new folks getting into it, um, having taught new folks and, and done these camps, what's that one piece that people aren't paying attention to in terms of getting ready for elk season that they need to be? Oh, baby. Um, <laughs> it's a tough one. So yeah. That is a tough one. I, I am fresh out of several camps, so I've been around a lot of folks that, by the way, I just love these folks that come to these camps. They're very like-minded, but I had a guy send me an email say, I showed up to your camp. I thought I was really good dialed with my archery. Um, I thought my elk calling and knowledge was good but needed some improvement and i thought my fitness was you know just maybe par and he said after your camp i felt like my archery was completely flipped on uh, on top of its head like you completely changed everything about my archery game the way i look at it the way i prepare prepare the way i shoot the way i practice um he said my elk calling that i thought was good is actually terrible compared to you guys Hmm. i need to really work on that and then he said, as far as fitness goes, he's like, I absolutely got crushed on your basic workouts. I need to step that up. So I think it's just shining a light on, hey, there's there's a serious way to do this, and we take it super serious. I think a lot of people will make comments to us like, well, yeah, it must be nice. You get to elk hunt a lot in September. And then I think Dirk and I explained to everybody, you know, we have prioritized elk hunting in our life. We've literally turned down more money for more time to elk hunt and you can too if you really love elk hunting you can make it a priority you can put it on the calendar way out in front you can let everyone know what you're up to your your spouse your partner and you can make it a priority but i'd say most people struggle with archery to the degree that we want them to be at i think a lot of people have some bad habits they didn't get taught by a coach just like if you kind of started doing CrossFit or some sort of workout program on your own and you were learning off YouTube, sure. you're going to have some bad habits. And if you get with a legit coach, they're going to pick you apart pretty quick. And then same with the calling, you know, like we have a whole nother level of calling and, and vocalizations and understanding of the language and the biology behavior of these animals. And when we start to show that, and then we, we break down our tactics and I think people are really surprised. So to, to, I'll give you one nugget for your listeners. Most of the hunters we meet, are not mobile and it's not a fitness mobile it's just that they go and pound the same stuff over and over 
they have their base camp, they have two or three drainages, and they just pound that into the ground. Mm. And when we tell them that we pull the stakes and drive 50 miles at night to the next spot, um, and we spend all day bugling off of a dirt bike or covering ridgelines, and we just, all the good elk hunters I know, we just travel more. We're trying to find the right elk to hunt, not just find elk to hunt, but the right elk to hunt. And I would never do a drop camp hunt on horseback. Pay somebody to drop me off 15 miles from a trailhead, and that's my camp. What if the elk aren't there? What if the elk have been pressured? What if it's just not the right feed for the elk in that time of year based on the weather? So the biggest thing I teach people is to get way more mobile and quit being like complacent on where you're elk hunting. Hmm. There it is. Well, very cool, man. Um, no, it's it's been a good it's been a good chat, and it's something to look out for. I know that we're having some tough times um, scheduling and, and and keeping with some of your elk camp dates. But as of right now, and, and as we record this, um, we'll date this at March nineteenth, and it'll be out the following Monday. But um, you you still have you had to cancel one camp at the top of April, but you will have a um, right now tentatively scheduled. It's still on the calendar. Your next camp is in late April. Yep, yep. So we just postponed the Wisconsin one. We're going to come back in June or July. Haven't figured out the details yet. And that's Lord willing, obviously. And then we're going to Denver, Colorado at the end of April. And I'm pumped about that camp because we have Dirk is going to be there. And then uh, Aaron Snyder of Kafaru is going to be there oh, to help out cool. with some of the backcountry stuff. Nice. He's really fun. And then we finish the year in Washington uh, over in Vancouver. And I'm bringing joel turner with me on that one and he he runs a shot iq program he's competed at elk calling and he's won it a couple times so joel's a real fun guy because he can break down everybody's shot process and their elk vocalizations and yeah it's a super special camp so we got three left i just don't know when we're doing the wisconsin one i imagine that one will be pushed back till early summer cool and what's the date on the vancouver camp because that's right in our neck of the woods we're at we're here in uh, dupont and uh, gig harbor Oh, for real? Yeah, it's uh, it's May 8th through the 10th, and we're going to be at Archery World and CrossFit Fort Vancouver. Oh, very cool. Uh, Fort Vancouver. Oh, fi- fired up. Um, we'll have to look out for and that. And on these camps, is um, do, they, do they have to – is room and board covered, or do you find your own hotel? I mean, how what, what's the specifics on that? Yeah, so the registration covers just the camp, uh, room and board or whatever. That's usually on – on the campers. I think some of the folks live within driving distance. I've seen some of the campers get connected and do Airbnbs, which is pretty cool to see all those guys hanging out after camp at night. But, um, yeah, the, the camp, like, so for us, it's a lot of, tra- our overheads, a lot of travel and I pay the subject matter experts really well. So, uh, we rent the archery shop out, we rent the gym out. So we, you know, we have to charge what we charge, but it's, I can tell you what, it's a, it's quite the experience. And, um, we have a private face, Facebook group page for everyone who's graduated camp, and that that is a very fun environment to see everybody just fired up, posting their their workouts, very their cool. shooting, their nutrition, and it's just a little community that uh, will continue to grow. Hopefully, so are you are you telling me we got all these hunters who do all these backwoods camps, and uh, they chase all these critters and all these wild spots, and when they show up to your camp, they're getting B and Bs. They're not they're not bringing their uh, they're not testing out their backcountry tents in the parking lots and getting their air mattresses out. I mean, if they're willing to sleep in their truck to, to, to bag an elk, you know, I'd imagine that that parking lot of Fort Vancouver should look like 
elk camp. I mean, oh, that that's a great idea. No, I've had a few guys do that. Uh, <laughs> okay. Even in the middle of winter, had a couple yeah. guys camp out, which was awesome. They're badass, but yeah, for most of the guys, I think they live pretty close. They're staying in their own bed. Very cool. Well, uh, well, awesome, man. We look forward to it. Hopefully, um, it'd be neat. We'll have to. Uh, I'll have to. I'll have to talk to the wife about getting out to Vancouver in May, and hopefully that camp still goes. But um, before we let you leave, Dan, um, you know, talking to Jeremy, we have a really cool um, partnership about to uh, maybe go down here uh, with a neat group. But I thought a cool way to kick that off, perhaps, would be. Every hunter I know seems to have a story of a hunt gone bad because not taking care of their feet. Even even our own Jeremy Day last year had uh, had some blisters on his heels, uh, not breaking in a pair of boots properly. Um, I know all the all the miles you're putting in the woods. You got to have a foot story, true or false? Oh, you're gonna hate me. I, dude, I've had some really good luck with uh, with footwear. Um, I do say that everything starts and ends with the feet when it comes okay. to hunting, you know? So when people ask me what bow should I get, what backpack, what's the most important piece of equipment, it's definitely socks and boots. And people, it's not the sexiest answer, right? Like, but <laughs> no. it, it does start there. And so I've had some really good luck with the, the boots I wear um, and making sure that they're obviously broken in. But uh, probably in my early days, back when I – couldn't afford good equipment. I probably had just a, you know, Walmart boots and uh, cotton socks and back of the heel blisters. And then you're talking moleskin and duct tape. And it's just, it does, it doesn't make the hunt more enjoyable. I'll say that. So yeah. And then every, everybody's different. Some people really sweat a lot through their feet. And I think that's where you get in to to trouble especially if you don't switch your socks maybe even midday so packing an extra pair of socks is not a bad idea and swapping those out if you're a sweaty foot person well there it is you know take care of your feet super important and uh we're helping you guys take care of your feet uh we suggest you guys grab a pair of uh ellsworth socks guys uh the only sock out there with patent v channel technology uh climb higher go further and stay drier with Ellsworth socks uh dan we're gonna have to try and hook you up with a pair of these because i'll tell you what i'm one of these uh i'm a foot sweater um and no matter what i do no matter what goes on in my feet uh i just can't i can't keep my damn socks dry and it, it, it kind of will screw a day up so i'm right with you on that but uh these Ellsworth socks that jeremy has put us on um and we've built a cool relationship with the ownership over there have it's not going to sound like the sexiest answer, and it's not going to sound like the craziest thing, but uh, these socks are as legit as they get. So, um, Jeremy, we're going to have to see what we can't do and, and hook our buddy Dan up with a pair of socks. Yeah, I'll get you a couple pair, Dan. You'll uh, you'll be super impressed. They're, uh, right on. It's the first time in 40 years that a sock has changed the design, so um, we got a 20-year <laughs> patent on it, and it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Well, sweet. Well, there, Thank you, guys. No, there it is. We'll hook it up, and we'll get you going. But, uh, yeah, it's funny. People don't think about the feet as much as they really should. But, um, Dan, you've given us a bunch to think about in terms of what we need to do to get our elk season going. And, um, you know, I think uh, I think we'll train, hunt, and live a little harder. And um, we'll take things a little bit more seriously because of your advice. And I hope you guys out there listening will do as well. Dan, um, folks who want to reach out to you, a uh, final word for you. Uh, where can they find you? And, um and um, we'll get the sign off after that. 
Right on. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I, you guys are solid, and I appreciate talking to you, even though you had me wake up at, what is it, five? <laughs> Early bird gets the worm, even in Podcastville. Yeah, even during COVID-19 times. That's right. Uh, I'm on Instagram, at Elkshape. We have a YouTube channel, Elkshape, a Facebook, Elkshape.com. You can find us. We're out there. We got lots of stuff, and uh, we're always excited to to hear from new people. So, yeah, that's where we're at. Well, fire it up. Uh, check out Dan at Elk Shape. Uh, stay with us at, at Backcountry and Barbells on the Instagram. And uh, Jeremy Day, as always, thanks a lot, sir. Thank you, brother. God bless America. Get after it, folks. Cool. Dan, that was um, good times, man. I appreciate you getting up so early for us. And. Uh...